All right, we can turn over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, and we're continuing and we're closing in on the final sections here. Matthew 26. You're going to have to put your thinking caps on today. Got a lot to cover, a little time to do it, so... Last week we looked at the anticipation of Christ's coming death and we saw in the first 16 verses of Matthew chapter 26 uh, we saw the, that Christ came to die. And uh, you have to understand this key concept if you're going to understand anything about the, the gospel of Matthew and even the life of Christ. Uh, the purpose, the goal, the objective... Uh, you might say the climax of the life of Jesus Christ was his sacrificial death. That wasn't the end to a bad plan. That was just the beginning. He came into the world for the purpose of dying. That was his purpose. That was his plan. Mark chapter 10 verse 45 says he came to give his life a ransom for many. And this wasn't some plan that was hatched after Eve ate the fruit in the garden and God had to respond and say, what do we do now? They messed everything up. No, this was a plan from the foundation of the world, the Bible says. So it wasn't a bad ending to a good beginning concerning the life of Christ. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ is the focal point, and we saw this last week, of all of Scripture. As one writer puts it, the quote's there in your notes, the death of Jesus Christ is not the end of the story, it is the theme of the story beginning to end. From the very first pages of the the, uh, pages of Scripture, you go all the way back to the Old Testament, you see over and over and over again the need for a sacrifice. You see it in the garden with Adam and Eve. As soon as they sinned, what did... What, what had to happen? There had to be a sacrifice to cover their sin, an animal sacrifice. It was a necessity of sacrifice. That's just the way God's economy works. And you move on in the Old Testament to Cain and Abel, and you see that not only is a sacrifice needed, but a certain kind of sacrifice. Remember, Cain and Abel had different kinds of sacrifices. One was accepted, one wasn't. And it was a sacrifice of death. That was accepted by God. A blood sacrifice. And then you can also move down through the Old Testament and see in the story of Abraham and Isaac. Remember, Abraham was told by God to take Isaac up to the mountain and sacrifice his only son. And we saw there that as he lifted the knife over his son Isaac, God intervened miraculously and said, hey, wait a minute, hold on. Thanks for your obedience and everything. But don't slay your only son. I got a ram caught in a thicket over here. And he's going to be the substitute for your son. And so we've, we, we see that not only is sacrifice a necessity, that it needs a blood sacrifice, but it's also a sacrifice by substitute. And so it's very important that we kind of understand that as a foundation before we go any further concerning the Passover. When you come to the Passover in the Old Testament, you're reminded of the one who sacrificed without spot, without blemish. The one who was sacrificed, Jesus Christ. See, and all this is preparing 
us for Jesus Christ, for the ultimate sacrifice, for the perfect sacrifice, for the perfect substitute, for the gift of God, for the unblemished Lamb of God. Remember, John looked at Christ and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away what? The sins of the world. There's only one way he could do that is be perfect in every way. And when you begin to open up the New Testament, you see the same thing. But you see it from a different perspective. The the Old Testament looks forward to the cross. The New Testament looks back to the cross. And so in the New Testament, you see on every page almost a mention of the cross. Why? Because that's the focal point. That's the focal point of Christianity. In all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the cross is the theme. The cross is the central point. In each Gospel, it occupies between 20 and 40% of the whole text of Scripture in those Gospels. And it's about that much of the Gospel centers around the final week of the Lord's life. So when you stop and you look at the whole of Scripture, you see it continually focusing on the cross of Christ, on the sacrifice of Christ. The book of Acts is the the world's reaction, basically, to the resurrection, to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We see how they reacted. And then you get into the epistles and Pauline letters and things like that, and you begin to understand that the death and resurrection of Christ is to instruct them. And it gives you certain implications concerning the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then finally, the end of the New Testament, you come to the book of Revelation, and you see there the Lamb of God that was slain before the foundation of the world. And he will now return as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So everything in the Scriptures points to this final sacrifice of Christ. So you can say the death of Jesus Christ is the focal point of all of redemptive history. And it's not just an accident, but it's the specific plan of God. So from all those slain animals that they they slew in the Old Testament, everything right down to the the Lamb of Revelation who's worshipped in glory and, and majesty, everything points to this sacrifice that Christ is about to give his life a ransom for many. And so when we come to Matthew 26, 27, and 28, we come to this great climax of the whole gospel. Everything before this is introduction. He's constantly trying to show Jesus as king in, in the gospel of Matthew over and over and over again. We see that. Last week, we saw the plan of sovereign grace in verse 2. We saw how that God had set the timetable and everything was moving in God's way by his sovereign grace. Two days away from the Wednesday in which our Lord is speaking in the part of this chapter. And Friday, the plan of God comes to its culmination. Remember, this is, this is, this is Thursday now we're talking about in our scripture today. But last week we were looking at Wednesday. And then we saw in verses 3 to 5 the purpose of hateful rejection. The rejection of the leaders, the religious leaders in verses 3 to 5. How they were plotting his death and looking for a way and a time to eliminate him. And they wanted to do it on their timetable because they didn't want all these people who were following Christ to cause a riot. If they went in and grabbed him and just uh, in the, during the time of the Passover and everything, Jerusalem was filled with people. All his followers were there. They just hailed him as king as he rode in on Monday, on, on, on that Monday into Jerusalem. But they didn't want to do it because of the crowd. 
So they had their own reasons for not just going up and grabbing Jesus when he could be grabbed. They had to figure out a way to do it by stealth. They had to figure out a way to do it in a quiet place. But they were already preparing to execute him. They were already preparing their plot. And then we saw the presentation of loving worship in verses 6 to 13 of Matthew 26, where Mary, who's loving to beloved disciple and friend anointed Jesus with that costly uh, perfume and the disciples led by Judas said what are you doing you know we could use this to feed the poor and Jesus says you're going to always going to have the poor with you but you're not always going to have me with you she knows exactly what she's doing she's probably the only one that understood that Jesus was about to give his life for her salvation then you see the betraying hypocrisy of Judas Iscariot in 14 to 16, the betrayer. It says, and from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Remember, this is a flashback. This is, this is the week before this Wednesday. And so all along, he's looking for an opportunity to turn Christ over. And so all this moves to the reality of the cross. And the first part of Matthew 16 talks about how other people are kind of anticipating the death of Christ. And then we come to verse 17, and it begins to tell us how Christ himself will prepare for his own death. How Christ himself will celebrate this last Passover. He's preparing. He's setting the time. So let's look at verse 17. I'll just read verse 17 to uh, 20 or 30. And we're only going to cover a small portion of this today, and we'll come back to it next week. It says, Now on the first day of the unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. I'm going to stop right there because that's probably all we're going to get to today. I want to talk to you this morning about the instructions concerning the preparation for the Passover. And you have to understand, when we look at this text, there's a couple things in here that we have to explain, first of all. So all those verses tell us that it mentions the Passover. It mentions the, the first day of unleavened bread. And then it says, where do you want us to prepare in verse Uh, 17, where do you want us to prepare the Passover for you? And then he says it again in verse 18. And he says it again in verse 19, mentions Passover, Passover, Passover. There's no question that Jesus is getting ready to celebrate the Passover meal with his disciples. And then in verse 21, if you read down a little further, it says, and they ate the Passover as they were eating. Okay, so they, they got together to prepare this Passover, then they actually sat down and ate. This is kind of a short account of this whole thing. The Gospels, the other Gospels, give us a longer account concerning the meal and everything else. Matthew doesn't. But when you look at verses 17 to 19, we come to the final, <clears throat> the final Passover that our Lord has with his disciples. Now remember, Jesus is committed to keeping the Passover. This wasn't an optional thing. It wasn't like, well, I'm going to die on Friday. I like a good meal. You know, what do you want? You know, it wasn't that kind of a deal. He, he wanted to get together with his disciples and really celebrate this Passover meal with them. This was the final one. 
Matthew chapter 3, verse 15 says that he came to fulfill all righteousness having to do with the law of God. And one element of the law of God was that they were instructed to keep the Passover. So if Jesus didn't keep the Passover, we'd have a problem with him. He wouldn't be fulfilling the law. So Christ, wanting to be obedient, sought to keep the Passover with his disciples. In Luke twenty-two fifteen, 15, by the way, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John all describe the scene from a different angle. So if you want a different perspective, you've got to jump around the Gospels a little bit. But in Luke chapter 22, verse 15, it tells us that Jesus, it says, had, and, and the word is kind of in, in, in the Greek here, he had this desire, this overwhelming desire to keep the Passover. It wasn't just like, hey, let's go eat a meal. It was very important that he do this with his disciples. And so they had to make preparation to do this. Now, to understand what's going on here, you need a little bit of background. The Jews filled their calendar with a bunch of different holidays, just like we do. We have Christmas and Thanksgiving and Good Friday and Easter and Fourth of July, all those things. Well, they did the same thing. And there's a list of the celebrations that they had there in your notes. They would celebrate the Feast of Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks. And it was to celebrate uh, the provision of God's harvest. They also would celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. When they, remember when they were wandering in the wilderness, they lived in tents. That was that feast. They had a Day of Atonement, speaking of the sacrifice that was made in the Holy of Holies. They had the Feast of Lights that talked about the deliverance that was uh, uh, done by Queen Esther. They talked about a Feast of Dedication, or what we call today Hanukkah. All right? It's also called the Feast of Dedication, and it talks about the deliverance of Israel under the leadership of Judas Maccabeus, and that's only recently that they've, they've celebrated that. They also had the Feast of Trumpets, which was celebrating the New Year's, kind of like a New Year's bash, and then also Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so you have to understand what we're talking about, or you're not going to get the text of the Scripture here in verse 17. By far, above all those feasts, The greatest day of all their celebrations was Passover. It was Passover. And it was part of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And they're both mentioned in verse 17 because they kind of just melted together over time. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then at the end of the the, the verse there in verse 17, it talks about the Passover. Well, they're kind of combined in a sense, you might say. The Feast of Unleavened Bread lasted one week, seven days, from the 15th of Nisan until the 21st. And that was all prescribed in the Old Testament. It was a seven-day feast. It was the day preceding the Passover. So the Passover came, and then it kind of kicked off the seven-day feast of unleavened bread. That's how it worked. And so they kind of just combined them all. So that's why you're going to see them... Uh, mixed here a little bit. They would celebrate the Passover meal on the 14th of Nisan, and then for seven days they'd have this feast of unleavened bread. We know what the Passover was for. The Passover celebrated God's delivering Israel out of Egypt, uh, the bondage of the Egyptians. Remember when they had the, the plague of the death of all the firstborn in every family in Egypt? And God said to them, you know what? You have to kill a lamb and you have to take the uh, spotless lamb and put the blood on the doorposts, the cross piece, and the angel of death won't come on your house if you do that. If you don't do that, your firstborn is going to be slain. But if he sees that blood, he's going to pass over the house. That's what the Passover is all about. That's why they celebrate the Passover. 
And that's why it was so important for Christ to celebrate it with his disciples here before he was uh, killed. Because he came as the Passover lamb. So the Passover commemorated the sacrificial lamb whose blood caused them to escape the judgment of God. And it was initiated back in Exodus chapter 12, if you're interested in that. You can look at that. It was a meal, and then it was held the night before the beginning of this Feast of Unleavened Bread. Well, what was the the Feast of Unleavened Bread all about? Uh, The Feast of Unleavened Bread basically spoke of, remember when we went through Matthew and he spoke of leaven. Leaven is not an illustration of sin, as some believe. It's just an illustration of influence. It could be good influence or bad influence. So when they left Egypt, God said, I don't want any influence of your past life coming into your present life. So you lead all, leave all the leavened stuff behind, and it was an illustration of them. They were to eat unleavened bread for a period of time. In other words, he didn't want any influence from the, 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 the pagan uh, people that they lived with coming over into their new life. And it's, it's the same thing with us. We don't want influence from our old life coming into our lives as Christians either. We seek to rid ourselves of that. We seek to set ourselves apart from that. But remember, Jesus rode into Jerusalem, not on a Sunday. We call it Palm Sunday, but it actually happened on a Monday. And when we went through that, we talked about that. It fits into the chronology better. It also eliminates what we call during Passion Week, the Wednesday, that nothing happens. If you have Christ entering on Sunday, then there's nothing happening on Wednesday of Passion Week. There's a big vacuum there. And that, I don't think that's the way it happened. But I think most significantly, Monday was the 10th of Nisan in the year 33, this year, the year of Christ's death. And that means that Monday on the 10th was the day in which everyone in the city was selecting their Passover lamb. So when Jesus actually rode into Jerusalem on that Monday, he was actually making a statement. Here I am, your Passover lamb. And if you know anything about the Passover lambs, what they had to do is they had to select the lamb in advance. And they would take the lamb home from the market or wherever they got it, and they would make the lamb live with them for a period of days because they wanted the lamb to be part of their family or the sacrifice really wouldn't mean anything. They wanted to know that lamb. They wanted almost to make it their pet. And then it would come time for the Passover, and they would have to slaughter it. And they would probably go, ah, we got to kill, you know, Bambi or whatever they named the lamb. And they would understand that this was a true sacrifice. Well, it's interesting. If you do all the the time work, and we don't don't have time uh, to go into all this today, But when Christ rides in on that Monday, he is basically saying, here I am. He's putting himself in the homes of all those people. He's saying, I'm the Lamb of God. I'm here. I'm waiting to be sacrificed. And that's how it basically unfolded. And the night of the Passover was followed then by the seven days of eating unleavened bread. And the whole eight days became known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So we understand the Passover. We understand the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And they would sacrifice a lamb to really remember the lamb of old when they would 
when they sacrificed to put the blood on the, the uh, doorposts. They would sacrifice a lamb to remind them of the price of their sin, what it cost. Um, and remember, Josephus said that during this period of time in the life of Christ, at this particular time, Jerusalem was just packed full of people. I mean, millions, almost three million people were in Jerusalem. And they all had these lambs every ten. And, and it worked out to, you know, over a quarter of a million of lambs were going to be slain during this event. I mean, that's just an incredible uh, event to have all those lambs slaughtered. And the Bible says that they were slaughtered all within a two-hour period, if you believe that or not, which makes the, the massacre just kind of, it blows your mind when you stop and you think about it. The, the river of blood, it says, ran out the back of the temple and down the slope of the hill into the Kidron Valley, and it filled up the brook, and it ran red with blood right toward Bethlehem. That's how much sacrifice was going on during this time. So it was a very dramatic time, this Passover feast and this unleavened feast. And the Lord had instituted all this all the way back in Exodus chapter 12. And he reminded us throughout the scriptures until we get to this point. Now, we understand as Christians that all those lambs that they sacrificed, could they take away anybody's sin? No. Right? There's no way. They couldn't take away the sin. It was an illustration. It was looking forward to the Lamb of God who was going to be sacrificed on the cross. And so here you have all these thousands upon thousands upon thousands of lambs being slaughtered for millions and millions of people. And all of them combined couldn't take away one sin. I mean, that's what the book of Hebrews, if you look at the book of Hebrews, that's what it talks about, right? It says that all the lambs and the goats and the bulls couldn't do anything But Jesus Christ, in one sacrifice, just one, he sacrificed himself. And he did what nobody else could, and he did it forever. Once. And so you understand what's going on here in the setting as Jesus is getting ready to get his disciples together for the Passover feast. That's that's the reason Jesus and his disciples are even in Jerusalem, because it's the Passover. Most people wouldn't even go near there because it would be so crowded with people. But the the rules and the regulations said, no, you had to be within the city limits. And it would get so full sometimes they'd even expand the boundaries officially. They'd pass like a little edict and say, well, we're going to make the boundaries a little bit bigger because we can't fit all the people in Jerusalem. Because the lamb had to be sacrificed in Jerusalem. Couldn't be sacrificed at your house somewhere. So you have the Passover, you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And when you stop and you think about all the preparation that needs to take place, that's what brings us to verse 17. It says, on the first day of the unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? In other words, okay, Jesus, the time's coming. We need to kind of get ready. It's not like you just show up for a meal. The Passover was a very prescribed thing. And it's, it's very uh, uh, kind of laid out. They have a very symbolic. Everything was symbolized in the Passover meal. And so when they came together and they would begin to uh, eat this Passover, the elements that they ate had to be prepared ahead of time. Now, 
you have to understand that in the scriptures, the day before the Passover is always known as the day of preparation. You, you have to prepare. You have to get ready. Uh, and it goes on, this, this feast went on for eight days of unleavened, but, but everything commenced with them getting rid of all this leavened bread out of their house. They had to rid of themselves of all that, and they had to get ready for this Passover meal, and that was basically the first event. Now, in the year that our Lord died in 33 A.D., the Passover came on a Friday. You can figure that out. And the text tells us that. The Passover was on a date, the 14th of Nisan. And from year to year, just like you know, Christmas or New Year's, um, it's going to fall on a different day of the week. Well, it's the same thing there. The 4th of July doesn't always fall on a Wednesday. It could fall on any day of the week, depending on the year you're in. Well, it happened in the year of our Lord, what day he was crucified, the year he was crucified, the Passover fell on a Friday. Mark chapter 15, verse 42 says, and, the, and it was the day of preparation, and then it says the day before the Sabbath. See, they had to get everything ready because they couldn't do anything on the Sabbath. So the day of preparation is always the day before the Sabbath, and that fell on this Friday, the Friday of Christ's death. And that's important to understand because it's a uh, neat illustration that Jesus comes in, he presents himself as the Lamb of God on Monday, goes through that Passion Week. On Thursday, he basically, Thursday morning probably, he gets together with his disciples, and this is where we're at right now. They come to him and say, hey, what are we going to do about the Passover? I know you want to celebrate it. Where do you want to do it? We have to get it ready for tonight. Thursday night. And look at what he says in verse 18. <clears throat> he says, Go in to the city, that's Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem's teeming with people, millions of people in there. Go into the city to a certain man. To a certain man. Now, I don't know about you, but if somebody gave me directions like that, I would just kind of shake my head and walk away. You've got to be kidding me. You want me to go into a Jerusalem who's packed full of people, millions of people, and just go to a certain man? Can't you give me some more information, Jesus? Come on, give me some more information. What's going on here? Why would he be so uh, kind of negligent to give him the proper information? He, they, it just says here, a certain man, and say to him. And in the Greek, it's a very interesting phrase because it's deliberately said that way so they don't know who this man is. They just said a certain man. You say, well, how did they find him? Well, the other Gospels tell us. Mark tells us, and the other Gospels say that basically they expand the story a little bit, and they say that when he went, he told them, he said, when you see a man carrying a jug of water, that's the man that I'm talking about. Didn't give his name. Didn't give his address. Didn't say, oh yeah, our old buddy Joe down there or whoever, you know, go to his house. No, he didn't do that. He just said very stealthily almost, under the radar, said, go to a certain man. And the other gospels say that this certain man, you'll know him by, he'll be carrying a, a, a jug of water. And you say, well, how many men would be carrying a jug of water? I mean, you said there's millions of people. M- most likely none. <laughs> because who carried the, the water? The women did. 
It was a, that was not a task for men to do, culturally. So when you saw the guy carrying the jug of water, it definitely stuck out. Now, the disciples want to get this stuff ready. They have to take the lamb in to get it. They probably already picked the lamb up on Monday when they went into town on, on that day when he went in to the temple. They probably got their lamb, brought it home, because it had to be in the home for a couple of days. And they're probably going to take it back and have it sacrificed and then bring the, the uh, uh, food to the, the place of this guy's house, and they'll have their Passover meal there. It's very, very interesting, this meal, how, how it all works out. They had certain things that they would do. They're preparing for the Passover meal. They had their lamb. They had to get other things. They had to prepare this, this slaying that had to be done in the temple court nowhere else. And it can only be done for a two-hour period of time from 3 to 5 in the afternoon. That's when the prescribed time for all these priests to sacrifice all these lambs were. They had to prepare their unleavened bread. They had to have a bowl of what we would call salt water. And what it was, it was a reminder of their tears that they shed in slavery. Uh, they had to have a mixture of bitter herbs, horseradish, and probably some other things, that endive or whatever stuff that wouldn't taste real good. And they put it together and they mix it with hyssop, and they, that's to remind them of the bitterness of Egypt. And the hyssop that was, was spread on the, 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 reminded them of the blood that was spread on the doors. They had this paste that they would put together. Actually, it sounds kind of good. It's made out of apples, dates, and pomegranates and had nuts crushed together with it. And it was made into this like thick sauce, and that's what they would dip their unleavened bread into at the meal. And that was kind of a reminder of all the, the uh, mortar that they had to have when they were making the bricks in Egypt. That's what that's all about. And they would even put cinnamon sticks in there to remind them of the straw that, that they used to make the bricks. Everything had a symbol in the Passover meal. It was very symbolic. And there were also four cups of wine. One cup, basically out of Exodus chapter 6, there's four statements. God says, I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. They drank the first cup of wine. And it wasn't just like our kind of wine. It was red wine, but it was heavily diluted, up to 50% water. Because they, they, didn't, they couldn't get drunk. That would be a violation. So they, they didn't drink the kind of wine we drink today. They would always dilute their wine so that it was almost non-alcoholic. <clears throat> and the second cup, is, they said, it says there, I will rid you of their bondage. And then third, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And then fourth, I will be your God. And for each one of those statements, they would have a cup of this wine mixed with water. And so they had to prepare all this stuff. And when you stop and you think, well, you know, who's, who's going to do that? The other Gospels um, basically tell us that Jesus was entertaining his disciples here, and they're saying, where are we going to do this? We have to have a place. We don't have any property. We can't just show up and not have a place to celebrate this, this meal with. And so that's when Jesus says, you go into this city and you find such and such a man, and... Uh, You'll, you'll figure it out because he's going to be carrying a jug of water. And when you see him carrying the jug of water, you walk up to that man who obviously had to be a disciple of Christ. You know, Jesus knew who it was. 
The disciples didn't know, but Jesus knew who exactly who it was because he said a certain man. And then he tells him to say this to him. In verse 18, it says, say this, the teacher, okay, the master, the rabbi, says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So when you stop and you think about it, they're going to walk up to a strange man carrying a jug of water and say, hey, the master says his time's at hand and we're going to have a party at your house tonight, a meal. I mean, that would take a little faith to do. And the other accounts in the other different gospels tell us that only two people went on this little trip. And you can guess who it was. It was Peter and John. He only sent Peter and John. He didn't send the rest. The other ten stayed with Jesus. And there are several reasons for that, by the way, because, you know, one of the reasons that the the priest would only allow two people to accompany the lamb when it was slain because they had so many people and so many lambs to slay in a two-hour period. You couldn't have the whole family coming. It'd just back everything up. So they said, nope, only two people. Enough to wrestle that thing in there, get it slaughtered, and then haul it home. The ten others stayed with Jesus. Um, Another reason, I think, that Jesus sent Peter and John was basically because they were the two disciples that were always being uh, close to Christ, intimate with Christ. They were trusted. They were his dear friends. And so you wonder, why isn't he just telling all the disciples this? Why isn't he just saying, okay, go to Joe's house down in Jerusalem, you know, the guy that's my follower, and he'll set you up for the Passover. Why doesn't he just come out and say that? Well, look at verse 16. Remember verse 16 about Judas Iscariot. From that moment on, what what was he doing? He was seeking an opportunity to, to betray Christ. That word betray is kind of a poor translation. It really means to, to, to deliver him over. That's what it should say. Judas was looking for a quiet place for a week now. Where can I get this guy set up to where they can come in and pounce on him and it won't cause a big ruckus? And so here you have Jesus getting ready to prepare the Passover and Judas is probably thinking, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go where we're going to have the Passover and I'll have them come in. And boy, nobody even suspects it'd be a quiet, it'd be you know, intimate place with Christ and they can haul him away and get my silver and out of here. I mean, that's what he was looking for because the first place that, Jesus, or that Judas actually found, a secluded place, was that Jesus was where? In the garden, remember? That's the first time that he really knew where Jesus was going to be. And that's all because God set this whole thing up. This is not by man's time frame. It's by God's. Jesus closed out the option for Judas for him to betray him at the Passover. Why? Because he had to celebrate the Passover. It was very important for him to fulfill that whole thing of the law and the righteousness. Christ had to do the Passover with his disciples. So if they were in the middle of the Passover and he wasn't able to complete it, that would violate his, his lawful duty as a Jew. And therefore, he wouldn't fulfill the scripture that says he, he will fulfill all righteousness. So he wanted also, I think to use it as an example, and that's what we're going to talk about a little bit today, of his own death. He wanted to use the Passover meal because he wanted to transform that Passover meal. That was the last Passover meal that occurred legitimately. 
and he turned it into a memorial for his own death. So he wasn't going to about to allow Judas to do what Judas would have done if he had been given the opportunity. If Jesus would have got all 12 disciples together and said, hey, we're going to go into Joe's house in Jerusalem. He's going to allow us to do the Passover there. Uh, we'll see you there. They're going to go and get everything ready. And well, Judas would have known where they're going to be. He could have set it all up. It's amazing how God works throughout this whole thing. So back in, in Matthew, it says there in verse 18, go to this guy with the water jug, the other gospel cells, say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. My time is at hand. My time is near, is what Jesus is saying. This time is not chronos. It's not talking about a chronological time frame. It's not time on a clock. It's, it's kairos, which means an epic time, an event time, a special time. And that's why he's speaking of the moment of his death. My special time in God's plan is here. That's what he's telling them. And that's what they're to tell this individual. It's going to happen. And this guy somehow is going to understand. He's going to know when you two walk up to him and he's carrying the water jug and you're going to say, hey, the master needs this and he's going to get it. Now we don't know how he's going to get it. Maybe Jesus talked to him before. We don't know. The scripture doesn't say. But he says there, my time is at hand. And then he says this, I will keep the Passover at your house. In other words, this wasn't an option. Jesus wasn't giving the man an option. He wasn't saying, hey, can we maybe hang out there? And ha-? No, th- this is an appointed, something that's appointed. It's something that's divinely ordained. That word appointed there really has the, the idea of a, a military term. And it says, and the disciples did as Jesus had directed them. They did exactly what Jesus told them to do. Peter and John went into town. They saw the guy with the pitcher. They followed him into the house. They asked the man, said, you know, hey, we're going to do the Passover here. Got all the preparation, put the whole thing together. Now, when you, when you stop and you begin to understand here that Jesus is going to celebrate the Passover with his disciples... And then the very next day, he is going to be literally the Passover lamb. The one that is sacrificed. You run into a little problem here. And the problem is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 18, verse 28. John, chapter 18, verse 28. Remember, Jesus and his disciples... This is Thursday morning. They're making preparations to eat the Passover Thursday evening. In John chapter 18, verse 28, listen to this. It says, Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas. When is this? To the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. So, Friday morning. They themselves, it says, did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled. Well, who cares whether they're defiled? What's the big deal here? But could eat what? The Passover. And you might be saying, well, wait a minute. If this is Friday morning and Jesus already ate a dinner, 
He called the Passover Thursday night. What's going on here? How can these guys say they're not, they didn't eat the Passover yet? And yet Jesus already ate it? Do you understand the dilemma? So some people say, well, the, the meal that Jesus ate Thursday night really wasn't a Passover. <laughs> Officially. Well, he called it the Passover. He told them to prepare for the Passover. They ate the Passover. It says that in every text that you read there. Well, what did they do? What's going on here? Thursday afternoon, they had their lamb killed. Thursday evening, Jesus came in with the other ten. They ate the meal at this guy's house. The whole evening transpired on Thursday. The, the whole event transpired on Thursday evening. And Judas went out into the night, turned him in, said he's going to be in this garden. Jesus left in the, the, the meal in the middle of the night, went into the garden. The soldiers came to the garden, captured him in the middle of the night. Now it's early Friday morning, and they bring him to trial. And he's already sacrificed that lamb Thursday afternoon. He's already eaten the Passover. Now we come to Friday morning, and the Jews then have Jesus in their arrest. And they lead him from Caiaphas' house into the Hall of Judgment very, very early in the morning. And the Jews wouldn't go because they didn't eat the Passover yet. (laughs) Verse 28 says that but they might eat the Passover. Jesus didn't have a private meal with his disciples. That wouldn't be a legitimate Passover. He says over and over and over again, it was the Passover. It was the Passover. They haven't done what Jesus has already did. So how do you resolve this? How did the Lord, here's the question, eat the Passover on Thursday night and the Jews on Friday haven't eaten it yet? Remember what I said at the very beginning. Christ came to die as the Passover lamb, right? He came to die as the Passover lamb. We know that he died on Friday. Matthew 26 Verse 47 says, About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Then Jesus died. Jesus died on Friday between 3 and 5. That's the ninth, the ninth hour would be 3 o'clock. But 3 o'clock, Jesus came to the end of his life. Think about this. On that Friday, the precise time that all those lambs were screaming out in the temple... As they were being slaughtered, the Son of God was screaming out on the cross. Incredible how God could put this all together. Well, what do we do about these Jews who didn't eat the Passover yet? How does this work? How do we put this together? 1 Corinthians 5.7 says that Christ is our Passover. He was sacrificed for us. Jesus came into the city on the day that the lamb was selected. He died on the traditional day, which means the lambs were slaughtered between the hours of 3 and 5, that every jot and tittle of the prophecy would be fulfilled in every way concerning Christ. And then what is Jesus doing with the Passover on Thursday night? How do we explain this? 
Well, it depends on how you define the day. <laughs> Very simply. It depends on how you define the day. I mean, stop, think about us. We say basically a day begins from midnight to midnight, right? So Monday begins when? Tonight at midnight. We go midnight to midnight. The Jews, in their day, went from sunset to sunset. Or from sunrise to sunrise. The normal routine of the day for the Jews was sunrise to sunrise. That was the normal routine. When the sun came up, they considered that a new day. But the festivals and special days with the Sabbath and the Sabbath day went from sunset to sunset. So it depends on how you're looking at the day. The Feast of Unleavened Bread in Exodus 12, 18 had to be celebrated from sunset to sunset for those seven days. The Jews also reckoned sunrise to sunrise as a normal calendar day. So you say, well, why are you telling us all this? Because it's important to understand that you can resolve that conflict between John and what Matthew is saying very, very simply. And I think that obviously God uh, truly worked this out. And as you dig into the, the history here, the Galileans, the northern people, and the Pharisees in that culture counted the day from sunrise to sunrise, the day of Passover. Whereas the Judean people and the Sadducees counted it from sunset to sunset. And we know that because the Mishnah, the, the Jewish law, tells us that. It says that the Galileans were not allowed to work all, at all on the day of the Passover. Why? Because they believed that it began at when? Sunrise. But the Judeans would work until midday because they didn't want to bump into the Passover accidentally because they, began, they believed it began at sunset. So Thursday then, the Galileans and the Pharisees begin to calculate the beginning of Passover. In the morning to the next morning, which is Friday morning, that is their Passover. The Judeans and the Sadducees don't begin until Thursday evening, and they follow it through sunset, and it runs until evening, Friday evening, at sunset. And you say, well, it's, okay, so what? See, the neat thing here is that Christ had to celebrate the Passover, but he couldn't celebrate the Passover if he was going to be the sacrifice. God, in his preordained sovereign, sovereignty, just had him die at the particular time in history on that particular year when this event occurred the way it did. It's amazing when you really stop and think about it. I know it's a lot to digest, but it harmonizes John 18, 19, because it tells us that the Galileans, which would be with Jesus and his disciples and the Pharisees, they could have their Passover meal on Thursday evening because they already counted that as, as the next the Passover day. And they had to complete the meal. They had to eat everything, the Bible says, and the, the law says, before the next morning. Jesus had to die on Friday. He had to be crucified on Friday because that's when the traditional Judean Jerusalem Passover would happen. And that's when all those lambs would be sacrificed. That's why it says the ninth hour was his death. 
he had to keep the Passover because it had, he had to transform it into the Lord's table. If he didn't have the last Passover, we wouldn't even be celebrating this today. I mean, it's really amazing when you study it all out. God, in his perfect sovereignty, allowed Jesus not only to keep the Passover, but also to be the perfect Passover lamb in Jerusalem. I mean, when we stop and we think of the death of Christ, don't stop and think for a minute that Jesus was the victim of some human plot or scam or anything like that. No, Jesus Christ died at the appropriate time when he wanted to die. He, he clearly said, hey, nobody takes my life. I give it what? I give it up. And so we see, once again, the sovereign hand of grace kind of overruling all the men, all their plots, all their schemes. Judas trying to trick him and trying to get him, you know, to get in a quiet place. And, oh, you know, well, we'll do it at the Passover. That would be a good time. Well, then Jesus just knows not to tell Judas and the rest of them any information. Just go to this certain man. It all works out perfectly. And when you stop and you begin to understand that everything in history revolves around the cross, the death of Christ. Without it, we wouldn't have anything. Our Lord is in perfect harmony with the divine unfolding plan of God because God controls every single thing in his sequence of events leading up to the cross. You say, well, how does that apply to me? Look at your own life. What's going on in your life? Do you feel like the onslaught is just coming on and, boy, things are running out of control and things, boy, God doesn't know what's going on? He does. He knows exactly what you're going through. Just like he knew exactly how this was going to work out for Christ. Perfectly fulfilling every aspect of the law and yet still being able to be that sacrificed lamb of God. See, he loses nothing in the midst of all this betrayal, in the midst of all his murderers. He loses no dignity. He maintains his majesty as king of kings and lord of lords. And that should give our hearts hope when it comes to our personal lives, to understand that, you know what? The Bible clearly tells us that we don't need to be worried about what tomorrow will bring. God is perfectly able, and he will keep us in his hand. Just like he allowed Christ to go to that cross perfectly, in every way, fulfilled every prophecy. And so today, as we celebrate this Lord's table, next week we'll get into Judas's betrayal and, and all that, but this morning as we celebrate the Lord's table, it says in verse 26 that Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples. And said, take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I don't know about you, but when you come to communion time, I hope that you feel that this is a special time in your heart. That this is a time when Christ died Not for everybody. It doesn't say that. It says for many. He died for those who would put their faith, their trust in Christ, in himself, for their salvation. 
And so this is a very personal time. It's a time when we can gather together as the body of Christ and remember what Christ has done for us. That he's washed away our sin because of his own sacrifice. Would you join me in a word of prayer and then we'll sing a couple songs and, and then prepare our hearts for our communion time. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we pray that you would just um, move and work in our hearts. I ask, Father, that, that you would help us to realize that, God, your sovereign hand is clearly orchestrating everything that leads up to the death of your son. Jesus wasn't a plan that went awry or went bad. But, Father, his sole purpose was to die for our sins from the day he was born here on this earth, his incarnation. His purpose was to be obedient to you and to wind up on that cross and to give his life a sacrifice for all those who would put their faith or trust in him. And so, Father, I thank you that we don't have to celebrate the Passover anymore, that we can celebrate what we call communion. We can call it the Lord's table. And we can do it in remembrance of the final sacrifice that was ever given for our sin, and that being your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, if there's anybody here this morning who's yet to put their faith or trust in you for the forgiveness of their sins, I ask that you would cause them to cry out to you. That you would help them to understand that they can't work this out on their own. Our good works are like filthy rags before a holy God. But Father, that we need to cry out from our hearts, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me, Jesus. He'll do that if you ask with a sincere heart today. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.